0: All right, welcome back to HealthSpan. This is Michael. This is part three of Breath by James Nestor. In this episode, I will be discussing breathing and its relationship to the autonomic nervous system. I'll be discussing tumor breathing, Wim Hof, carbon dioxide, and then finishing off with the epilogue. So, before I begin, if you're enjoying this podcast, make sure to please leave a review. And I'll go ahead and leave my Instagram in the episode description if you want to leave me a comment or suggestion. So we begin with the autonomic nervous system. I've definitely talked about the autonomic nervous system before. Remember, this is our fight or flight rest and digest systems that we aren't in control of. But as it turns out, breathing is actually a powerful switch to this uh, vast network, network we call the autonomic nervous system. And we begin the discussion with this doctor named Dr. Stephen uh, Porges. And he was a scientist and professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina. And he had studied the nervous system and its response to stress for 30 years. And his main focus was on the vagus nerve. Now, the vagus nerve is our 10th cranial nerve. And it's really this powerful uh, lever. And it turns on organs. Um, It can turn on and off organs in response to uh, certain stresses. And what he was finding, what Porges was finding, was that a lot of these uh, maladies like uh, tingling in our fingers, diarrhea, uh, tachycardia, diabetes erectile dysfunction they're often treated um, each of these symptoms like individually like separated into individual organs and what a lot of times these people suffered from was not this individual problem but really uh, this was more of an autonomic problem and he puts here that what they offer, often suffer from are communication problems along the vagal and autonomic network brought on by chronic stress so it's just really the stress that's affecting our autonomic nervous system. And this is what's causing a lot of these problems that uh, a lot of people suffer from uh, in the United States and in the world. And he puts here that, uh, fixing the autonomic nervous system can effectively cure or lessen a lot of these symptoms. Like if you think about, um, people with pacemakers, uh, they, they have these artificial uh, implanted electrical nodes in, in patients who, um, you know, have problems with their heartbeat. Uh, we're like changing the autonomic nervous system that way. Um, And we're often using, like, a vagal nerve stimulator to affect people who have, like, anxiety, depression, and certain autoimmune diseases. But there's a lot uh, easier way and less invasive way that Porges found can actually help stimulate the vagus nerve. And, of course, this is with breathing. And breathing is an autonomic function we can consciously control. Now, this is very counterintuitive because... Uh, technically, we don't have control of our autonomic nervous system, right? This is the stuff that um, kind of comes to us and it's out of our control. But as it turns out, breathing is that one thing that we do have control of and can actually affect our autonomic nervous system with. So he puts here that while we can't simply decide when to slow or speed up our heart digestion or to move blood from one organ to another, we can choose how and when to breathe. And willing ourselves to breathe slowly will open up communication along the vagal network and relaxes into this parasympathetic state. So he puts here that, James Nestor puts here that, breathing really fast and heavy on purpose flips the vagal response the other way, shoving us into a stress state. It teaches us to consciously access the autonomic nervous system and control it, to turn on heavy stress specifically so that we can turn it off and spend the rest of our days and nights relaxing and restoring, feeding and breathing. So the point of this passage is that we can actually flip our switch just by breathing. We can affect the way we feel just by breathing and affect our autonomic nervous system just by breathing, which I think is fascinating. Now, we kind of pivot to tummo breathing. So throughout the 20th century, interest in tummo and tummo breathing grew. And it kind of grew out of this uh, fact that there were these stories about monks who often wore nothing but a single layer of clothes through the winter and they were actually able to heat themselves in a frigid uh, stone monastery by day and melting their circles in snow around their bare bodies by night. Now this is uh, int- so fascinating, I highly recommend you uh, read up on Google these these monks who were able to change their temperature body just by breathing and it sounds so like outlandish but uh, a lot of these monks were actually put to the test. So eventually a Harvard Medical School researcher named Herbert Benson put these monks to uh, to the test. They they put tumour breathing to the test. So Benson, he flew to the Himalayas in 1981. He recruited three monks and hooked them up to a bunch of sensors which measured their temperature in their fingers and toes. And then he asked them to just practice tumour breathing. And during the practice, practice, what he noticed was that the temperature in the monks extremities went up by as much as 17 degrees Fahrenheit and actually stayed there and these results were later published uh, in the scientific journal called Nature so he put them to the test and he actually saw that these monks were able to raise their body temperature by 17 degrees and help them keep help keep them warm um, in these in these freezing cold environments so I thought that was just fascinating that uh, just by breathing uh, specifically tumour breathing can actually help us uh, raise and change our body temperature. Now, this discussion would not be complete if we did not discuss about Wim Hof. If you've been on YouTube or if you've you've seen, uh, watch TV, you've definitely heard of Wim Hof. He's also known as the Ice Man. And he's known for things such as running a half marathon through the snow, above the Arctic Circle, shirtless, and in bare feet. Uh, He was also injected with E. coli, you know, this this toxin that's supposed to be very toxic to us and give us, like, vomiting, headaches, fevers, and stuff like that. But when Hoff took uh, this injection of E. coli, he was able to practice the tumour breathing, and it, it kind of willed his body to fight off any of this fever and nausea, so he suffered nothing of that. I I think he also hiked uh, Mount Everest as well, like, shirtless and barefoot. He, he's done some pretty crazy stuff. Um, but the essence of his breathing is, uh, you know, he, he kind of developed around this tumor breathing. And here, here's Wim Hof's breathing technique. So to practice Wim Hof's breathing method, you kind of start by finding a quiet place and laying flat on your back with a pillow under your head. You want to relax your shoulders, chest, and legs. Take a very deep breath into the pit of your stomach and let it back out just as quickly. Now you want to keep breathing this way for 30 cycles. And if possible, breathe through your nose, and if your nose feels obstructive, you, you can breathe through your lips. Now, each breath should look like a wave, with the inhale in, inflating the stomach, then the chest, and you should exhale all the air out in the same order. Now, at the end of those 30 breaths, exhale to the natural conclusion, leaving about a quarter of the air left in the lungs, then hold that breath for as long as possible. Now, once you've reached your breath-holding limit, take one huge inhale and hold it up another 15 seconds. And then very gently move that fresh breath of air around the chest into the shoulders and then exhale and start the heavy breathing again. And you want to repeat this whole process three to four rounds. And then you can actually even add this into some cold exposure as well. So that is, that is the essence of Wim Hof breathing. You can definitely look it up. Uh, I'll leave a link in the episode description if you want to uh, research more into Wim Hof breathing. It's kind of gained popularity over the years. Um, because it works um, and you can really access uh certain uh certain moods certain features in your body that um just by breathing uh, this technique uh so give it a give it a google now we we next move over to uh another story and this is the story of a girl named s m now this girl s m was this woman with this weird disease called erbach disease. And in this disease, what happens is is that this condition causes a cell mutation and a buildup of fatty material throughout your body. And it even deposits in the brain as well. This fat stores deposit in the brain. Now, specifically in the brain, it will get clogged up in this area called the amygdala. Now, the amygdala is really this decision making uh, and processing of emotion center in our brain. And it's also this area that is believed to be Ah uh, the alarm circuit for fear um, and signaling threats and initiating reactions for uh, a fight or run away. So the amygdala is like this emotional center and decision making center and center for uh, alarm and fear. And because this fat de- deposited in this amyg- in her amygdala amygdala, she all her worries, stress, and anxiety all kind of dissolved and she was very numb. She couldn't get scared. She couldn't uh have any stress or have any worry. And and that sounds that sounds really good. Um but it, it's just this weird uh anomaly where her fear is completely diminished. And a lot of times this can be harmful to us um if we're in you know a situation where we need to activate these uh stressors in our body. And researchers had actually spent two decades studying SM trying to understand her condition and they've been trying to scare her and they did some stuff like they showed sm films of uh, humans eating uh, feces and then they took her to a theme park haunted house and put slithering snakes on on her arms but nothing really seemed to work Uh, she didn't get scared at all now she she was taken under under another doctor by the name of dr Uh, feinstein now feinstein he had been Um, experimenting with carbon dioxide. And what happened was he took SM to his lab. He gave her a single breath of carbon dioxide. And right away, he noticed some changes in her. Her droopy eyes uh, grew wider. Her shoulder muscles tensed. Her breathing became more labored. She grabbed at the desk and yelled, help me, I can't breathe. So it was a single puff of carbon dioxide that triggered uh, this stress, this fear and emotion in her, uh, just by taking a single puff of carbon dioxide. So a single inhalation of carbon dioxide quickly changed, um, you know, the way she was feeling, and this kind of showed that the amygdala was not really the only alarm circuit of fear, and there was this, uh, there was another deeper circuit in our bodies that was generating perhaps a more powerful sense of danger than our our our. Our amygdala could muster and it was this deep fear and and crushing anxiety that comes from the feeling of not being able to take another breath so I guess inhaling this carbon dioxide gives you the sensation of uh, not being able to breathe and I'm sure we've tried this you've you've tried holding your breath and you get this like anxiety and this crushing fear of uh, of, uh, suffocating and this causes panic and you sort of start to panic, and this nagging need to breathe is activated by these neurons in our, uh, these neurons, they're called central uh, chemoreceptors. Now, what happens is um, these chemoreceptors are located in our brainstem, and when we're breathing too slowly, the carbon dioxide levels rise in our body, and when they become too high, it's telling, it's telling us to breathe faster and faster. So, if you see free divers, they often, uh, take a lot of these fast, uh, shallow breathings, and what they're doing is exhaling about all the CO2. And the reason they do that is that they don't want their central chemoreceptors to let them know that they need uh, air, so they're able to hold their breath for a long time. That's why they practice that breathing. Um, But again, the scientific reason for that panic, that it can be generated by chemoreceptors and breathing instead of like our amygdala, is just profound. Um, so check out the carbon dioxide study by dr feinstein and uh, and this patient sm uh, very interesting story so we're moving a little bit more forward and um, to finish off really with the carbon dioxide he puts uh, but everyone breathes and today few of us breathe well those with the worst anxieties consistently suffer from the worst breathing habits um, and people with anorexia or panic or disorders or OCD consistently have lower, uh, carbon dioxide levels and a much greater fear of holding their breath. And to avoid another attack, a lot of times they breathe far too much and eventually become hypersensitized to carbon dioxide and panic if they sense a rise in the gas. And they are anxious because they are over-breathing and over-breathing because they are anxious. So, uh. That's finishing off the uh, CO two talk, and we're gonna go ahead and um, sort of move forward to the last part, um, the epi- epilogue. Uh, but before we go to the epilogue, uh, I'm gonna discuss James's trip to São Paulo, and really quickly, I'm gonna discuss his trip to São Paulo. So he he goes to Brazil, and he meets with this yoga expert. His name is uh, Louise. Uh, DeRose, and he really went there to figure out, uh, first off, why the body heats up during tumour breathing, and secondly, how tumour breathing and other breathing techniques like holotropic breathwork can induce um, such a hyper-surreal and hallucin- hallucinatory effect, and at, at the end of the day, he he tells stories about other people he meets, and he has a long chat with this guy um but the key is really that um, the key to tummo breathing or any of the breathing practice rooted in ancient yoga is to learn to be patient, maintain flexibility, and slowly absorb what breathing has to offer. So really unlocking this potential in us to affect the way we feel. And that's that's really the essence of, of tummo breathing and breathing in general. So finally, to the epilogue... Um, I've shared these past three episodes about how breathing can affect uh, a lot of things in us and how it can treat a lot of, of stresses, a lot of like asthma, headaches, um, autoimmune issues, but he puts a caveat here and I'm glad he added this in here because breathing is not really a uh, a uh, solve all kind of uh, thing, um, so he was being approached by people Uh, like on flights and stuff. When they ask what, like what he does, and he would tell them that he he works on breathing, and these people would often come to him with these problems, like oh my friend, um, he suffered a embolism, and um, is there anything? Is there any breathing techniques he can do? Or he he's he's just being approached by people, and like another one about this this woman who had a neuromuscular genetic disease. And he basically puts here that it's not a cure-all. Breathing is not a cure-all, but it can be one of those things that we can establish in our in our life to make us, uh, to get rid of the smaller stuff like the stresses and the anxiety that we have just from from living. Um, and he, he puts here that modern medicine does still have its limitations. And he puts that modern medicine, they said, was amazingly efficient at cutting out and stitching up part of the body in the emergencies, but sadly deficient at treating milder chronic system maladies like asthma, headaches, stress, autoimmune issues um, that most of the modern populations um, contends with. And he puts it that the role of modern doctors was to put up fires and not blow away smoke. Now again, nobody is happy with this arrangement because doctors are frustrated that They had, uh, neither the time nor the support to prevent and treat milder, uh, chronic problems while patients were learning that their case, uh, their cases weren't dire enough for attention they thought. And this is why he he thinks so many people have come to breathing because breathing is fixing a lot of these smaller issues that you don't really need to go to a doctor for, but there's still these chronic problems that you're, you're trying to deal with. And then he quotes this man by the name of Albert, um, uh, Giorgi, who is a Nobel laureate, and he puts here that uh, more than 60 years of research on living systems has convinced me that our body is much more nearly perfect than the endless list of ailments suggest. Its shortcomings are due less to inborn imperfections than to our abusing it. And he goes on to to say that uh, a lot of this stuff that is killing Americans are diseases of civilization. And 9 out of the top 10 killers, like diabetes, heart disease, and stroke, are caused by the food we eat, water we drink, and houses we live in, and offices we work in. These are diseases humanity created. Now, while some of us may be genetically predisposed towards one of these diseases, that does not mean we're really predestined to get these conditions. And we know that genes uh, can be turned off just as they can be turned on. This is the whole idea of epigenetics. And remember that the genes load the gun, but the environment really pulls the trigger. So what switches uh, them are on are inputs from the environment. And we know that breathing can be a huge input into uh, switching on uh, certain genes. And for this reason, James puts here that, From what I've learned in the past decade, that 30 pounds of air that passes through our lungs every day and that 1.7 pounds of oxygen our cells consume is an import, is as important as what we eat or how much we exercise. Breathing is a missing pillar of health. So that is how he ends his book, um, as breathing, as really this missing pillar of health. We are all familiar with the pillars of health, uh, at least two of them, exercise and diet. But this, there's a sort of third pillar that a lot of these doctors and researchers fight over, like what else... Can contribute to our health span. What else can contribute to our longevity? And if you talk to you know Dr. Matthew Walker, he's gonna say sleep is. If you talk to uh, another doctor, you might he might say that inflammation is this uh, this missing pillar that we need to reduce inflammation. Uh, and if you talk to James Nestor, he says breathing really is this missing pillar of health. Um, but ag- again, we can kind of uh, accumulate all this stuff and put it into a third pillar so we have exercise we have diet and then we have this sort of like spiritual sleep uh breathing inflammation kind of pillar uh that can all be kind of uh uh com- combined into one and again breathing i hope um after re- reading after you listening to this podcast or after you reading this book uh can really be incorporated into uh, one of your pillars of health and help change a lot of these chronic problems that you may be having like headaches, uh, stress, or any asthma, kind of stuff like that. So uh, that is uh, Breath by James Nestor. Uh, I enjoyed this book. It was a nice short read. Um, I felt like I learned a lot. There was a lot of anecdotes, not as much science as I'd liked, uh, although he does uh, mention and does uh, reference a lot of studies in this book. Um, But yeah, this is Breath by James Nestor. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. And I hope you tune in next week for uh, another book that I'll be discussing. Uh, Thank you for listening.